0: So anyway, so, you know, through several sermons, uh, several times there have been sermons about various individuals that were raised up by God in the Old Testament to lead the Israelites back on the path of righteousness, to to repent. Fourteen of these people were called judges. They were unique leaders that would help protect the people from their enemies. You know, the the title judge in Hebrew also means deliverer, it means savior. Different judges would come and go in a time period that spanned about 350 years, and some of them you would readily recognize, like Deborah, Gideon, Samson. But today I'm not really going to speak about any particular judge, but I want to examine about why God provided them and the core of why they were needed in the first place. Why was there a need for judges? The place we're going to start, of course, is going to be the book of Judges, And here we're going to start with the death of Joshua. If you remember, God appointed Joshua to succeed Moses. And Joshua had done everything that was commanded of Moses. But when Joshua's time in this earth comes to an end, we start to see a change. And it says in Judges 2.8, it says this. Joshua's son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They had buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gesh. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. Because they forsook him and they served Baal and Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them, and they were defeated. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. So after the death of Joshua and the people of that generation, the Israelites strayed away from God and they were suffering for it. There was no prosperity. There was no peace. They lost every battle. The Lord delivered them into the hands of their enemies. He was angered against them because what they were doing, but also at the same time, he had compassion for them. He loved them. He had pity on them. And he heard the cries of the people. And his answer for that the judges, people who would be appointed by him and who would provide some relief as far as their suffering at the hands of their enemies, leaders who would point to repentance and to the righteous way. And even him providing these, even with that, the Israelites were stuck in this pattern. As soon as the judge would die, the people would once again move away from God. God would chastise them by using the nations around them. They would be defeated and oppressed. In turn, the people would start crying out again. Things weren't good and they were suffering. And God would raise up a judge and the process would start all over again. And this pattern repeated itself for 350 years with much pain, with much sorrow and with the Lord consistently showing compassion for the plight of the people continually providing another leader who would guide them in his ways. So this is really why the judges were provided. Basically, it came down to this, God's grace and God's mercy. His grace to provide them a way to repent, true repentance, to provide them a way to open and to wake them up to changing their way and changing their direction and to coming back to him. But that leads you to the next question is, how did they even get to that point spiritually? How did they get to that point where they were suffering and they had to cry out to the Lord? How did the people who had witnessed the hand of God so many times, had witnessed many miracles in God's provision, had witnessed God answer prayer in the 11th hour, who had sustained them and protected them? How did they walk away from God? We know that after Joshua's leadership ended, that they were not in good place spiritually. The Old Testament tells us that, um, people had strayed away from God, but it actually makes a stronger statement than that. And it says after Joshua and, and, those of his generation had died, it says this, after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's a huge statement. Saying that the people who had witnessed what God had done, who had understood what God required, who were reverent of the God of the universe, that generation was gone. says that the whole generation that came along next did not grow up knowing the ways of God or even knowing the things that he had done for Israel, and they started following different gods. Before we go on, I just want to... I want to go to, what do we know so far? We know this. We know that God provided the judges because the people suffered and cried out. We know that they were suffering because they had moved away from the Lord. They were following other gods and they were under the Lord's chastisement. We know they strayed because they really didn't know the ways of the Lord anymore. or the things that he had done for Israel. And one might ask, how the heck can that be? How did they get to that point? How is this huge this dichotomy between one generation and the next? It seems like a drastic change out of nowhere, but it really isn't because what should have been taught from one generation to the next wasn't. What should have been shared about the miracles and deliverance of God from one generation to the next wasn't. And this is when you start peeling the onion back. This is when you start looking at the core and you start getting a clearer picture of why the next generation was lost. Why they strayed from God. Why they were under chastisement. And it all goes back to one word that we hear all the time. One word that's very familiar to us and is disobedience. Comes on a disobedience. It comes about down the people's choice to go against what the Lord had instructed them to do 400 years prior. See, we have this tendency to think that our actions and the choices that we make have no spiritual consequences. We have a tendency to think that what we do right now, if we go against the Word of God, if we do our own thing, that it's gonna have no spiritual consequences. It does. Here they went against the word of God four hundred years prior. They were disobedient, they didn't do what God tells them to do, that he instructed them to do in the book of Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy, and they're paying the consequences for it then. It was in Leviticus that the Lord gave them much instruction to the people about sacrifices, about rituals, about how they were to live. He taught them about how to worship him, taught them how to stay separate from the pagan nations surrounding them. He was protecting them from the outside influence that would distract them from him. And in Leviticus 18.1, he said, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You know, it's pretty cut and dry. It's a don't do statement. It's a don't touch the stove statement. And he's directly telling the people, don't copy the practices of the Egyptians, of who you were delivered from. And don't copy the practice of the Canaanites, of whose land you're going to end up in. And it's probably and it's for these reasons, for this reason, excuse me, and probably more that we don't know because God's thoughts are higher than ours, That He comes up with this. He wants to completely eradicate the Canaanites. He calls for the genocide of the Canaanites. He tells the Israelites, "I want them wiped out." In Deuteronomy twenty sixteen, he says, "In those towns that the Lord your God is giving you as a special position, possession." destroy every living thing. You must completely destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. This will prevent, and this is why, this will prevent the people of the land from teaching you to imitate their detestable customs and to worship their gods, which would cause you to sin d- deeply against the Lord your God. Why is he doing this? Because he's protecting his people from falling into the practices that would lead to worshiping other gods. He's trying to protect them from going down paths of unrighteousness and getting hooked up into pagan practices and doing the wrong thing that would offend God. And he instructs them to wipe them out. Listen, today this would be a hard thing for people to swallow. And a lot of times we hear, oh that was Old Testament. Listen, God's protecting them. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to kill women and children. Are you kidding me? Well, then pay the consequence. If God says it, is it wrong? Well, I'm glad two people think so. The rest of you, there's consequences. But listen, when God says it, they needed to do it. And them not doing it was disobedience of God. How do we get this sin in the world to begin with? Disobedience. The Garden of Eden, and here we go again. Their plans, the plans, the plan of God. Instead of killing them, they have some of them work for them. They had a better idea. This is better, God. We have problems with these type of actions because we're not looking through it through the eyes of righteousness. We're not looking at it through the eyes of God. We're looking at it through the eyes of the world. We're looking at it through the eyes of emotion. We're looking at a lot of things through the eyes of emotion, and it gets us in trouble. God knows that if they let them live, it's going to pose a problem for them, and that many are going to suffer because of it. And he knows that unless they're wiped out, that there was going to be spiritual consequences. And the consequences caught up with the two generations. And now we're getting to the center of the onion. Now we're getting to the layers being stripped off. And we're revealing the disobedience because really it was this. They didn't destroy them. And they were supposed to. They ignored his instruction. And that resulted in a whole generation stumbling neck stumbling neck deep into sin. And after Joshua's death the people were called on the carpet. To Joshua's death, they were made aware of the consequences that were coming. And it's interesting to see the reaction in Judges 2-1. Back to Judges, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give you, give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? I have also said I will not drive them out before you. They will become trapped for you and their gods will become sneers to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bokum and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Listen, the Lord's instruction was pretty black and white. And the people didn't want to do what they were instructed to do. And here, you know what their reaction is? They start weeping out loud. And you know what? They're not weeping in the midst of their sin. It's already done. They're not weeping because they've offended God. They're weeping because he just told them the consequences that were coming because of what's been done. They heard the truth. They were convicted. And they're weeping. They had done exactly what God told them not to do. And guess what? They were about to pay the price for their actions. This is something we have to remember. When we're going to go against the word of God, if we're going to choose otherwise, get ready to pay the price. Don't be shocked and complain when something happens. Don't be shocked and complain when God does something in your life and you're like, okay, well, what are you picking on me? There's consequences. They had let the pagans live, and their ways of life seeped in. Their practices started to be followed by the Israelites. Their gods started to be worshipped. From one generation to the next, what should have been shared was corrupted. The reverence for God watered down. The remembrance of what he had done started to fade, and idols took his place. Instead of being separated from the pagan nations around them, the unrighteous of those nations were accepted and the practices were tolerated. It affected the worship. It affected the knowledge of the Lord. It affected the memory of God's provision. What did it say about that second generation? They didn't have a clue. They had little knowledge of God and little knowledge of what he had done for Israel. They were lost and they were being drawn into evil. And they chose to serve serve Baal and Asareth. They were the product of parents who walked right into a spiritual trap, or grandparents, who walked right into a spiritual trap of the pagan nations and they were going to suffer God's wrath for it. And through a decision to go against the will of God, were setting their sons and their daughters up to follow the world. Because by their own example, they were tolerating. Now I'm starting to not sure if I'm talking about today or the Old Testament. We all know we can talk a good game, man. We can say the right thing at the right time. But, you know, your actions have to line up. Or you're a hypocrite. What does God want? What does God want with them? And we're going to get to what God wants with us. What's he want with them? He wants them to repent. Repent wants them to turn back to him. wants them to break that cycle with judges. They don't want to keep providing judges. He wants them to come back to a path of righteousness, do the right thing. He wanted them to do the right thing to begin with, and they fought him. He wanted them to do the right thing. He wants them to do the right thing now, and they're still fighting him at this time. So many times we talk to people and they're all about the New Testament. They don't really see the value they should in the Old Testament. And without getting into too much detail, because of time, there's so many ways in which the Old points to the New, and the New clarifies points in the Old. The New Testament brings, in, brings into sharper focus principles that were introduced in the Old Testament. One commentator said it like this, and I love this, the Old Testament shows the wrath of God against sin with glimpses of His grace. And the New Testament shows the grace of God towards sinners with glimpses of His wrath. And I love the way He says that. But there's principles in the Old Testament that are clarified in the New Testament. And this is one of them. And Leviticus 18.3 says, You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Don't follow their practices. It may not be apparent to you right away. It may not stick out to you right away right now. But this is something that we're really familiar with. Because this is the principle in the New Testament called unequally yoking. And... Most people are familiar with the yoke. The yoke is that wooden thing that goes over two oxen. So when they're plowing a field, they can work together, and their power can be combined, and they're going in the same direction. Doesn't work when you put a donkey in an oxen, or if you put a deer in an oxen. They can't pull together. They can't do things in unison. Their power doesn't get. They're fighting against each other. They're bumping heads. So that's what it means by unequally yoked. And speaking to the Corinthians, Paul gives them this warning about being unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6:14 says, "Don't team up with those who are unbelievers." How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? What union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and they will walk among them. I will be with their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among the unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. I will be your Father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. Listen, this is not about not talking to somebody who's an unbeliever. This is about not getting yoked to somebody who's an unbeliever. This is about not getting yoked to those things that they're gonna bring you in that are unrighteous or they're not promoting the kingdom of God or they're not promoting Jesus Christ, or they're not moving forward for the kingdom of God. There is so many things in this world that are drawing us away from Jesus Christ and we don't even realize it. And they're becoming idols in our life and we are worshiping them and they're sucking us right in. And we are getting yoked and we're willingly doing it. And we're willingly doing it. And let me just say, there's spiritual consequences. There's spiritual consequences. Well, I might ask, why is this warning even here? Because the Lord is protecting them and protecting us from being spiritually drawn in the wrong direction. He's protecting us and giving a heads up, don't follow your wants and desires, follow me. Telling the Corinthians, be careful you don't get tripped up. Be careful you don't get un- involved in unrighteousness. Be careful you don't join in unrighteous things. And here's the deal here, okay? Unrighteousness sometimes is very obvious, okay? Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes we get involved in it. Sometimes we fall down. Sometimes we make mistakes. But are those things that we have a tendency in this world to call neutral. They're not righteous and not unrighteous. But let me say this, if those type of things are pulling you away from Jesus Christ, then it's unrighteous. If it's pulling you away from fellowship, if it's pulling you away from the church, if it's pulling you away from ministry, if it's pulling you away from the Lord, if it's pulling you away from the it's unrighteous. If you're taking the majority of your time and spending it in the neutral, is that what God wants? I mean, I guess everyone has to ask themselves that question, right? That's a personal question. Does Jesus Christ want me doing this because it's good for the kingdom? And when the answer is no, then what do you do? See, God's trying to protect us. He was trying to protect them. Isn't that, isn't that what he was doing in Leviticus? Don't follow their practices. Isn't that what God was trying to, trying to prevent until the Israelites of Deuteronomy? Wipe them out, destroy them. You know why? You can't yoke to something that's not there. Problem was, they refused to obey God. They did their own thing, paid the price for it. They were getting intermarried. They were drawn into everything that was wrong. You know, for those people who were here last time, and they heard my last sermon, I was making a main point. It was, it was concerning temptations that don't seem like temptations, at least at first. Um, they, they come, they appeal to your wants, they appeal to your desires, and you realize all of a sudden that it's not really a blessing. It's kind of pulling you away from Jesus Christ pulling away from fellowship, pulling away from church. Usually these type of things, these type of temptations, they're like opening a door. And one of the the doors that really gets open a lot of times is tolerance. See, they tolerated. The Old Testament, the Israelites tolerated the people. And it became a massive problem. They tolerated the people and it started to seep in. And what began with disobedience moved into tolerance. And then all of a sudden, tolerance turned into participation and they got involved. And the participation turned into sin. And the sin led to God who? We have to be careful for that. Because we're faced with the same type of thing. If we get too deeply into tolerance and it leads to those type of things, then we're talking about Jesus who. Because what's going on is that we have this God in our mind, Jesus in our mind. It's not Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus of our wants and our desires. It's the Jesus of the pick and choose verses. It's the Jesus who loves everyone and there's no accountability for anybody. And isn't that what we're dealing with with churches today? Are we dealing with churches who are preaching there's more way to heaven than Jesus Christ? Are we dealing with churches saying it's homosexuality? Homosexuality is okay. It's not. I'm telling you right now, we get more conversations about homosexuality. And some of those conversations are, oh, some of those conversations are with young adults who have had a watered down Christ trickle down from their parents. I'm just saying the truth. And they're not teaching them the word of God anymore. They're teaching them what they want to teach them out of the word of God. They're not teaching them a one true living God, Jesus Christ. They're teaching them about the Jesus Christ that they want to be. They're shaping, they're molding what God is. So we have to be on guard because we have to stay in the word. We have to hold the line no matter how painful it is. And just because there's conflict and just because there's confrontation, we stay in the word of God and we stay to what we know is true. Because when we're in the word, we're out of trouble. As soon as you start to compromise, as soon as you open that door of tolerance, sin walks through. And when you let a little bit in and you tolerate it, it starts to grow. And all of a sudden... All these things are okay. And they're not. (sighs) When we open the door of tolerance, we're actually in the world and of the world. There's no other way to say it. If we start tolerating what's against God's word, what the heck are we teaching to the next generation? This is where disobedience for us begins when we start picking and choosing verses that we agree with. We start passing it on. When we do that, we start hinting that God made a mistake in his word. There's an error in that verse. Did you know that? You don't have to follow that one. That's what we're saying to the next people. That's what we're saying to the kids, the next generation. That's what we're saying to the person we're trying to teach the word of God to. You don't have to follow this part. And that disobedience becomes tolerance. And we start passing on a watered down version of Christ. People start doing their own own thing. Jesus Christ loves me. It doesn't matter what I do. And this is where tolerance starts and the participation because when someone starts saying that, someone else bites in because they have their wants and their desires and if they can get away with it, I'm going to that church. And when the sin, when we find ourselves over the line of sin, it becomes Christ too. Because listen, it's just not the Christ of the Bible. We are blessed that we are in a church with people who are fighting to stay in the word of God. And if we argue with with you, if we confront you on verses because we believe it's the word of God and we won't vary for it, be thankful for that. Because it's not about numbers. It's not about money. It's about righteousness and we're trying to hold that line. <clears throat> you have to be careful because it happened to the Israelites. It happened to some of the churches in the book of Revelation. And if you let your guard down, it can happen here too. Spiritually, we need to pay attention and be willing to change direction if we find ourselves on the wrong path or going against the word of God. Spiritually, the people I was talking about, repentance wasn't even in it because they kept going back to what they were doing. Or some didn't even care. We have a God of repentance. We have a God of restoration. We have a God of reconciliation. We have a God of get up. Don't stay down, get up. Get up in me, walk in me, walk in his power. We have a God who desires, you know the one thing he desired? He desires through this whole thing with the Israelites, through the Corinthians. For us, is for us to go to him. to For us to walk in his ways. To us to choose righteousness when we come to that crossroads and we have a choice not to choose our own way. He wants us to choose him. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. So today, you know if we've talked about the Old Testament, we've talked about the New Testament. Let's be spiritually watchful about the things that we're involved with. Let's be willing to admit that maybe we've been on the wrong path. Let's be willing to admit that maybe we're yoked to something that's taking our time or leading us in the wrong direction. Let's be willing to admit they're involved in practices that we shouldn't be. Let's do what God requires of us and to repent. Have a change of mind. Choose Christ. Choose righteousness and a change of direction away from the world and towards God. And let us pray for discernment in His strength, and let us have that reverent fear as we worship Jesus Christ of the Bible. Gary Bowden, where are you? Okay. Well, how about you just serve communion? He's going to get him. So, listen, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you today. We're going to take communion. I don't know what they're doing, but um, take your time. You know, don't rush out of here. Spend some time. Just start serving, gentlemen. It's fine. Because really it becomes about you and Jesus Christ. It's not about you and the pastors here. It's not about you and these four walls. It's about you and Jesus Christ and in the body of Christ that he has placed you in and what you do and what you don't do. We all have decisions to make. None of us are perfect, but we have the Lord who stands here with his arms outstretched waiting for her to, to catch us or to lift us right back up, amen? Because we have to do it in his power or we can't do it in our own. So as they serve, I'm just going to ask you to, to remain quiet and to partake of communion, remembering what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, remembering that he is coming back, Remembering that God wants us to love one another and if we have something against another brother or sister in Christ he wants us to leave our offering at the altar to go make it right and then come back and make the offering. So for some people, if you have anger in your heart if you're have, if you upset about something if you have something against another brother or sister in Christ for you, don't take it. You need to be serious about this. You need to be serious about what the Lord did for us and what He wants for us. Communion is a great way for us to have purity in the church because every time we take communion, we're supposed to do the right thing as Christians and forgive or ask forgiveness. It's a time to lay down selfish pride and it's a time to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's a time to press in to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. It's a great time to repent and change direction. And know that you're doing it with the power of God. So I'm going to ask as you receive communion, take a moment, take it in your own time. When you are finished, service is done. I'm going to ask everyone to be quiet as you leave so those that are praying will not be interrupted by you.